Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week again will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. Trevor is back from moving to Nebraska where he's going to start his PhD program so he could be with us for this week's recording. Um, This week we're going to release the first half of our conversation that's primarily over books three and four from the Confessions. And next week we'll release the second half of this conversation, which is book five. Um, So we're going to try to do this one a little bit shorter. This one is about an hour, and the next one's going to be a little over an hour. I wanted to say thank you uh, to our three Patreon supporters right now, Aaron Burke, Matthew McClellan and Tom Tancredi have all uh, contributed to the podcast, and so we really appreciated that from uh, the three of them. So we're just getting started. We got you know four, nearly 430 likes on Facebook, and we've got three supporters. So you know, as I've said in the past, if every person who listens to the podcast would give us one dollar, it would cover our costs for hosting the podcast. But if you can't contribute financially, we understand and we are happy to release this for you uh, freely through the podcast medium. But if you would give us a like on uh, on Facebook and review us on iTunes, those also would really help the podcast get out and get out to more people and would be beneficial to Tom, Trevor, and I. So in this conversation, we delve deep into Augustine's education, rhetoric, Um, and some of the things uh, in this early part of Augustine's life as he starts his path and his quest towards his unification uh, with his uh, mother as a Christian when they ultimately come and and come into the presence of God in their mystical ascent in Book 9. But we're still a little bit away from that. He's got a few more uh, turns to take in his life. So please join us in this conversation. And, uh, yeah, we appreciate you listening. Other podcast. So we're going back through um, some stuff that we left out from book three, uh, because this is one of the richest texts in the history of the Western uh, literary canon. Uh, we could not do justice to the whole thing, which will surprise no one. Um, and uh, so we're going to go back through, and Trevor is with us, so Trevor can jump in on the conversation. Tom's going to read us a bit from book three. Uh, book three, it's in some um, numberings, it would be 3713. Uh, in other ner- numberings, it's just 313. Uh, but there's been some different ways that they've numbered the confessions over the years. So, yeah. Well, I think one of the things before, well, actually, I'll go ahead and read it. And then I'll, yeah. well, there's a bunch in here, so I don't want to read all of it. I'll just kind of get started with how he frames the question. So okay. he says, so he, now keeping in mind, everybody, that he's speaking. From his vantage point, as a manichae, at the or uh, not necessarily a manichae, but as a uh, what do they call it? A learner or a a hearer? A hearer. That's it. A hearer of the manichaeans, as he's kind of like a catechumen, so to speak. He's preparing to enter into the mysteries. He says, "I also did not know that true inward justice, which judges not by custom, but by the most righteous law of Almighty God." So what he's saying is, is he, he's referring to the fact as his vantage point now as a Christian referring to his time as a hearer of the Manichees, he's saying, I now know that there's a righteous law, like a universal law of God that doesn't judge by custom, but is universal. But instead he thought as one who, who judges by custom. Uh, So he says by this law, the moral customs of different regions and periods were adapted to their places and times while that law itself remains unaltered everywhere and always. Now, here he enters into his view now, I think, that is that there is a universal law that remains unaltered everywhere and always. However, there are moral customs of different regions and periods that are adapted to periods and times as well. He carries on. It is not one thing at one place or a time, another thing at another. Accordingly, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and all those praised by the mouth of God were righteous. When untrained minds judge them wicked, they judge by man's day, a quote from 1 Corinthians 4.3, and assess the customs of the entire race by the criterion of their own moral code. So let me kind of explain what I take he's doing here. He, uh, as a manichee, the manichees believed that the Old Testament was a terrible book, that, that it was a... That, it was replete with evil people like Abraham and David who did terrible things like offer sacrifices, um, who killed people in the name of God. Like these are things that the Manichees said are evil. So God could never sanction 
or condone them. And it seems as if Augustine is drawing this distinction and he's saying, okay, look, the Manichees are right to a certain degree in the sense that there's this universal law. But, he goes on to say, there are also customs for a time and place, customs that might differ. And so what was customary in Moses' day or in Abraham's day isn't customary today. In essence, it almost is like there's a tension here. And Chad and Trevor, I'd like to see what you guys have taken from this reading. There's a tension here where, on the one hand, he seems to assert absolute justice, absolute ethics, absolute law, and cultural relativism. If that makes sense. <clears throat> yeah, I actually h- highlighted this passage myself. Like it was the it was actually the first thing I highlighted because it was the thing that really struck out to me the most that there is a seemingly um yeah, well no, yeah, you just put it right the first time. There there's like a big tension here. It seems like he wants there to be this objective moral, I would say duty and also like law itself or some sort of essence of what is moral and he wants to ground it. It seems like at most points it's going to be in what God says to do, but mm. see, and that, which that'll also, we'll probably get to that later. Cause that, that also gets into the divine command theory stuff. But in this section here, when he, yeah, when he puts this forward, you're like, what's he trying to say about these, uh, I guess, sort of customs of man other than that they were like ordained by God, like they were okay because, because of the actual time and place. But then when you cut down to um, it's what's later. So we're still in 13, but it's later on down. Uh, <clears throat> he says, does this mean that justice is fickle and changeable? He says, no, but the epochs over which she rules do not all unfold in the same way precisely because times change and it talks about like, you know, human life is brief. And so the there's conditions in some age that won't be conditions in another age. And I, I had a hard time actually really piecing this together. I didn't know exactly how he was connecting God's sort of unchangeable law to these different customs. Cause it are these, like merely customs? Is that all he's trying to say? Like these were just customs and that's it. But then they were commanded by God. And he does say something later, like if God tells you to do something, you're going to do it. Right. But does that mean like what, what I think it means, which is sort of whatever change, whatever changes as like objectively good um, or sorry, whatever becomes objectively uh, good is sort of, capricious like according to god's will which just changes randomly like it it's really hard to piece together i don't know what you guys thought it it is actually that's kind of that's really where i was and that's why i really wanted to flesh it out and actually have a conversation because it's not clear to me what he's getting at uh you quoted one of the passages there trevor that i was about to go to that just he said he's denies that justice is liable to variation and change but just before that he says god gave one command to people in former times and another to those in latter times for reasons of a change in historical circumstances. Although both ancient and modern people are bound to submit to the same justice, same justice, different circumstances. And then in another passage, a little further, he says, although it is in no respect subject to variation, yet it is not given all at once, but at various times it prescribed in differing contexts what is proper for the circumstances. So he's saying justice doesn't change, but in different contexts, it looks different from what I can tell. And then a little further, he says, therefore, shameful acts, which are contrary to nature, um, such as the acts of the sodomites, quoting from Genesis 19.5, are everywhere and always to be detested and punished. Even if all people should do them, they would be liable to the same condemnation by divine law. So now he seems to say there are some things which universally, no matter what, wherever you are, are always bad. But then other things that are not, like, I, I, I'm very confused. Chad, do you have thoughts on that? Um, yes. Let's see. Where to begin? 
Um, I had the, yeah, there are, I mean, there's a lot as you've both alluded to, there's a lot in, in all of the, uh, in all of that it's so for one thing, some of it is a little bit, um, I will resort to saying that some of it is, is kind of, um, typical Augustine. That is, he seems to, you know, he kind of talks out of both sides of his mouth. Um, it's just like at the, at the very beginning, the very first chapter, right. He says something like, um, how do I call upon God if I don't know uh, the name the name of the God that I'm calling upon? Or how do I know you? Um, for, do I pray to you first, or do I know who you are first? How does this go? It's a little bit circular, and so I think that's a, a little bit of that is just frankly is his sort of um, rhetorical style. Uh, I, I almost, also, do you think it's almost like a dialectic he's engaging in, like a like he's going back and forth, he's seeing things that change by custom, like almost like a cultural relativism. And he's thinking, but there are also these things that are universal and it's supposed to be universal. So how do I work this together? Is it like dialectical? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Insofar as, uh, okay, so if this book is written in 397, we can think about his early dialogues in the early 390s, which were dialogues, which were were dialectic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are I think, I mean, I know that there are different philosophical interpretations of what the ancients, so yeah, so I think the, there's, there's different uh, interpretations of what the ancients were doing with these dialogues, but I think that's kind of uh, in his mind, okay, I can say this thing, but then I can think about this counterexample, or I can think about this thing, but there's also this reality. I think the closest that I would come to resolving it is... You know, they're like it's it's sort of what we would say if we were interpreting, you know, uh, is it first Peter that talks about women having coverings over their head in church? Mm-hmm. Um, and we would say, no, no, oh, no that's first Corinthians, yes, yeah, first Corinthians, yeah. Uh, so we would say, well, that's a uh, a sort of a time bound custom that we uh don't need to hold to anymore, that's not an eternal truth of God. Now, how we're meant to separate that from, you know, he uses the question of the sodomites here, which, you know, clearly means, um, well, actually, I think this might be having sex with the visitors. I don't know that it necessarily has to mean uh, homosexuality, but it probably does uh, in, in, in extenuation or in, uh, in extrapolation. But um, yeah, which is interesting because, of course, there are a lot of people who would today identify that as a cultural thing, right? As opposed to one of those universal things. Right. So I think, I I don't think he's giving us a very clear answer on what things are meant to be eternal and what things aren't. Um, But uh, yeah, I I sense him to be sort of in, you know, going back and forth in his own head. Well, maybe it's this, well, maybe it's that. And I don't have, you know, I, I was trying to read it one one thing that he gives um, as sort of a universal principle, he does, um, surely it is never unrighteous anywhere. So this is um, 3.8.15. Surely it is never unrighteous anywhere to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. For example, there are disgraceful actions, yada, yada, yada. So, which we read. This reminds me of the beginning of De Doctrina Christiana, where uh, the on Christian teaching, where he says, scriptural interpretation, um, there are lots of, of uh, interpretations that could be wrong or right, and there might be multiple right answers to how we should interpret scripture, but you should never uh, go against this principle. Um, and this is one that he takes to be a sort of universal guide to interpretation of scripture. Um, so I think that's at least his starting point for something that is universal. Um, I, I can think of some sort of theological or philosophical objections to saying it so simply, um, but it sounds good. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I, other than saying that, I would also point out that I think a lot of this has to do with language. The use of mores the, uh, is the Latin word that comes up a lot. Um, he talks about the most um, – uh, well, consuetudine uh, is, is in part 13, but then he goes on um, a little bit further down to use the, the mores regionum. And mores are often have to do with um, uh, acceptable language, um, and I think a lot of this has to do with um, – with, with, um, uh, what, what's, 
what's acceptable in certain um, language communities. And so, uh, you know, that would be my other connection to De Doctrina Christiana. Um, it's also reminded me that um, James K.A. Smith has a book and a set of lectures called uh, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? Um, and he takes uh, St. Augustine to be a kind of um, – not vicious postmodern, which may be a bit of an uh, of a uh, <laughs> of a leap, uh, but Wait, that's where he would go. Be a not what sort of like a not vicious postmodern, or like a not not uh, so sort of like there's kind of an acceptable Christian form of postmodernism. So he's like um, saying he's saying he describes Augustine as like a postmodern thinker in a sense. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, it's there. He's by definition pre-modern. <laughs> well, but he sort of, you know, he uses the the great word anticipates, um, which, <laughs> uh, you know, it can get a get frustrating. But um, yeah, he would say that um, that that there is some sort of he would call it creaturely relativism, and so uh, the the distinction. I think he makes the case that what's going on here is some sort of divine versus creature. Um, distinction. And so from a creaturely perspective, there is a kind of relativism, but from a divine perspective, there isn't. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's an Augustinian interpretation of uh, postmodern debates um, or relativistic debates. Hmm. Now the best I was able to do, cause I've read this section, I don't know, four or five times trying to get at what it was getting at. The best I was able to come up with, if I was to kind of, I think dumb it down to as plain of language as I could is that there is an absolute justice and morality and it's a principle, but it can look different in terms of application at different times, different places. Right. Um, so that's kind of the best I've been able to come up with it. And I think what he was saying when he brought up, for instance, the acts of the sodomites, which, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I I do think the scripture, uh, the Bible teaches, and it seems to me that the church fathers that we've read teach that, um, you know, homosexuality is one of these, you know, essentially immoral acts. And I think that he's saying that one thing I would say, I don't, I certainly don't buy into the idea that people bring about that um, the real sin of Sodom was being bad hosts. I, I actually don't know why that even needs to come up. Even somebody who wants to hold to the idea that uh, this issue of same-sex relationships is, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, wants to say that it is culturally relative. Like, at the end of the day, in the city of Sodom, they were trying to rape somebody. And I think we all think that's bad, regardless of yeah, what people yeah. believe. I don't know why <clears throat> this emphasis people came about or uh, came about among scholarship that the real sin of Sodom is being inhospitable. It certainly is inhospitable to rape people and that's bad. <laughs> and that's a, that's a theme in that story, right? Because lot is being hospitable by bringing that, those, those people in, but it's like, even if you don't want, I mean, I, you know, I, I think if you were to use the story of Sodom itself, as if that alone was what the Bible had to say on the issue of homosexuality or LGBT issues or same sex relationships, whatever, you know, kinds of relationships we're talking about. If the, the story of Sodom alone was used, clearly that wouldn't be enough. Right. You have to look at what the rest of Scripture has to say, because at the end of the day, we all think rape is bad. So maybe that's what Augustine is referencing here. And I have no problem with that, that he's saying, look, what the Sodomites did and meaning the people of Sodom trying to take these two strangers and rape them is bad. And it's universally bad no matter where you are. And I think in general, most people can get on board with that. Uh, you know, like, I think everybody can say that's a very bad thing. Um, so what he's doing there is, as far as I can tell, he, he's saying, look, there's this justice principle and the justice principle looks different in different contexts. But remember that story in Sodom when those guys gathered around Lot's house and tried to rape those visitors? That is the kind of thing that is always bad. No matter where you are, that's the kind of event that is always an application of the principle that you're supposed to love God and love your neighbor. That, or well, I should say it is always an application, I should say, 
of a violation of that principle, loving God and loving your neighbor. And so, but then there might be another situation where it's not super clear. Like maybe in Moses's time, uh, giving yourself to God implied offering animal sacrifice. Like that was just a part of what it meant to give your, you know, to, to, to um, what sort I'm looking for, to basically forsake all to follow God. And so that has a different expression than it does in Augustine's day, where that is only practiced by the pagans. So that's kind of what I'm taking from what he's saying there. Yeah, I I think combining what you said with what he also says about justice and the analogy of the armor may makes me think that there there is sort of there is a kind of coherent picture here, which I, I took it to just be. Well, it, there's two ways I think it can go, and I'm not really sure which, so you guys can give me your opinion on which you think it is. But it seems like if we make it about justice, because he says, like I quoted earlier, uh, he says, you know, basically, does justice is, is justice the thing that's changing? And he's like, no. Um, then I think if, if we take that in conjunction with this analogy he gives of the armor, because he talks about people who don't understand this are like people who like pick up a helmet and try to put it on their foot and then they get mad or they get mad that uh, even though there was an appointed time when you could sell something that they are being tried for selling something at the non-appointed time and they get angry because they don't see the difference. Uh, He says, this is what these people are like. It seems like then we can maybe think if we just take the armor analogy, either people or, or entire epochs. I'm, I'm likely to think it's the latter. Like, actual entire uh, segments of time must be analogous to like the pieces of armor or something like this. And what he's trying to, yeah. And so what he's trying to say is, look, you're getting mad that uh, something is judged one way at one time, but essentially, uh, and you're saying that this is against justice, which to me, whenever I hear justice, I don't know, maybe Augustine meant something different, but I think of fairness. So, yeah, the, if the armor analogy, um, which breaks down if you go too far with it, but if you as just... As I'll do. As I'll do, right? <laughs> but if you, th- if you think of it as basically just saying, look, uh, people aren't recognizing that sometimes things are fit at one time, but not fit for something at another time. And so you're sort of crying that this is um, unjust or it's showing that there's something varying in God. I think that the one coherent thing he's putting together is that it's not unjust. And that and that part at least seems right to me in the sense that God can look at the situation and in his wisdom know, look, these people don't know X and Y and Z or they are limited in certain ways or they're in a time when I, you know, there's, you know, there isn't an, uh, there's just different problems literally they have. They have different things they need to worry about. Um, and so perhaps Augustine has a view in which he's like, look, he's going to say to these people at one time, do this, because that's going to be the thing they can do or um, seems most reasonable at the moment that they would understand. Who knows? And that it's it's not basically, um, it's not like justice itself is being overthrown. Because if we... If we take justice roughly to be fairness, I'm not claiming justice is only fairness, but if, it, if it's roughly fairness is a major component of justice, it seems right to say what Augustine's saying, which is, look, this isn't completely like an unfair thing. Uh, in fact, this this is fair, and yet there is still the subjective law of God. And anyway, I was just yeah. trying to compliment Tom's thing, but yeah. <laughs> it's sort of, I, I, I do find... The, uh, yeah, uh, well, we've been dealing with this for a while, but this is a really thorny problem and a very interesting one. Um, and so I'm happy to – I could say one more thing that, that I just noticed. Um, looking back, let's see, on in uh, 8.15, he says, uh, When God orders something contrary to the custom or agreement of a group of people, even if it has never been done there before, it must be done from then on. And if it has been neglected, it must be restored. And if it had not been established, then it must now be established. Um, So what I, you know, 
I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I think this is what Augustine's saying or if I just think that this is what is true. Um, but to some degree, I think what he's saying is God sort of started the project of getting us to align with justice in the Old Testament. So if we think about if we think about sin, so he also says this this beautiful thing about sin a little bit further on in um, in eight sixteen. Um, three eight sixteen. He says, "So we return to you in humble faithfulness, and you cleanse us of our faulty habits, and look with us, and look with mercy on the sins of those who make their confession. And you hear the groans of those who are shackled, and you free us from the chains we have made for ourselves. And all this, if we no longer lift up the thorns of our pretended liberty against you, driven by our greed for more possessions, by the hurt of losing completely." Uh, by loving our personal possessions more than you who are the God of all. I like this this language of, uh, and you hear the groans of those who are shackled and you free us from the chains we have made for ourselves. So I take I take like God's plan in the Old Testament to be sort of a taste of what is going to happen in Jesus Christ, right? So for St. Augustine and for all of them, uh, or, or and for the church fathers, what happened in the Old Testament is God beginning um, to instantiate the true justice in the world. Um, and so there are customs in the Old Testament that are driven by sort of human um, arrangement and ingenuity. Um, but they are, but, but everything that humans do is by their own fault and by their own making. And slowly, God invades the world and starts to turn even those customs, um, you know, that may, not, that, that may not be vicious or virtuous that are just kind of there, and slowly t- turns and angles them all to true justice. Um, and so it's God's prerogative to allow us to do these things, um, some of which are vicious, um, some of which, which are clearly evil, like um, what happened at Sodom, and some of which, which are customs, which are not that big of a deal. But even Augustine will ultimately say that um, really, I don't know that any, I, I actually don't know that any custom is totally value neutral. Um, like I, I think that he wants the, the perfect kingdom will show that, that even those things that seemed to be value neutral ultimately, um, you know, help led us in some way or another uh, to either something good or evil. Um, we just may not have recognized it at the time. Um, but but all of this is of our own doing. So I think the first and foremost thing here is that um, is that Augustine recognizes sin as something that we do in rebellion, and God comes in and slowly turns us back towards justice. Um, and the fullness of that is in Jesus Christ. So. Uh, and probably the best that was had before Jesus Christ was in the Old Testament, which for, for, uh, foreshadows um, Jesus Christ. And, you know, but, but he also recognizes that only the Jews received that um, for a time. So I don't know. That's, that's a little bit how I would. And so he slowly undoes these, these shackles that we put on ourselves. Is this, is this perhaps like, I don't even know how to word this, a precursor, a forerunner? Uh, maybe does it betray the fact that Augustine might be a little bit on board with the idea of a progressive revelation or something along those lines? Uh, I mean, I don't think that that's progressive per se, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, guess, I mean, I guess it is. I guess insofar <laughs> as like, I mean, I... I I, the, the the part that seems progressive is the fullness didn't come until Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if that's the case, well, yes, I guess, uh, you know, it, 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 is it like, I, I don't know that I think it's the case that he thought that we should all worship like the Jews. Um, yeah. And if that's the case, well, uh, then we should worship in spirit and truth as Jesus Christ calls us to. Um, which doesn't mean we neglect the Ten Commandments or something, but we do neglect sacrificial law. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I mean, I guess if you want, I mean, I think that there is a divine plan throughout um, and a little bit of, and maybe it's a little bit of allowing humans um, enough agency, let's say, um, to... how we would understand the old testament eh, i don't know I'll, I'll walk that back a little bit um <laughs> but yeah i don't know i guess it i guess it has to be a little bit progressive although that makes me uneasy well you know stuff is i always have kind of a general uh reticence to embrace that term at all um 
uh, you know, one of the problems that I have with the whole idea of a progressive revelation is it makes you feel like authority is not anchored, right? Uh, if you have progressive revelation, you're like, well, wait a minute, how do I know what new stuff is actually the right application of the principle, so to speak? Plus, it's too dang Hegelian, and I, I don't know, I, Hegel worries me. But, but uh, the thing is, is that there's no doubt that there has to be at least some element of progressive revelation because Moses and Jews in his time and in David's time, they did not know who Jesus was. They did not know about the, at least not very explicitly, the crucifixion or the resurrection. You know, I mean, I know people have made arguments that you see it buried in Old Testament prophecy. And I think that's not just arguments. I think you can find it there, right? But it's not like it was something that was just explicitly on the tongues of every Jew in antiquity. So that means there must be some degree of progression. Um, you know, you find the, the, the book of Hebrews is a book that definitely contains in it this idea that, look, the stuff that was going on in the Old Testament is all anchored to the reality of Jesus, his death, his resurrection. It's all meant to be a teacher. Um, but even in that, there's this notion that there's a progression that once we only knew this much, and now we know more, you know? Um, so does that progression end with Jesus Christ, or does it continue on? You know, I just ask me, I'm just curious. I, I haven't read a lot of, like, I know Cardinal Newman is writes kind of a big defense of progressive revelation, right? Yeah, he, yeah, the idea of development, yeah. And I just haven't read much on that subject, so... Well, so uh, to, to return to Newman, and maybe this is a way of explaining what we're talking about in the idea of progress. It's not a progress insofar as God's truth ever change. It just changes our understanding of it, or our understanding of it changes. So Cardinal Newman it's, is struggling. What's that? I was going to say, so it's like a, an epistemological progression, not a metaphysical one. So what we That's know right. progresses, and what we can know progresses, but what is true does not progress. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, how that progression occurs is the question of Cardinal Newman. So, um, so like, basically, as far as I understand Aquinas, he thought that the deposit of faith given to Peter just had to be la logically extrapolated by humans. Um, and so the project of theology in the church was to take what was given to Peter and through logical necessity – um, slowly unravel um, and slowly um, explain what was already there, um, but but not quite fully understood. And Newman says, "Well, we got to we, we, maybe logic isn't the right way to think about this. The movements that have happened are not, in some strict sense, logical, um, but they are developmental. They have changed. They have progressed. Um, it's still given in in nuce is the the Latin phrase in a nutshell or in a nut." Uh, to Peter, um, but it has to be slowly um, worked out. Um, and somehow God is at work, even in that development of helping humans to understand what was once given. Uh, um, so would this be, is this limited to just sort of things revealed, like a theology and revelation, or how does natural theology then fit into that picture? So I, as I understand, uh, well, okay, uh, hmm, let's see. Let me think about this for a minute. Uh, the, well, the one other point that I was going to make before, and, and you went a totally different direction. The Sorry. reason that <laughs> that's all right. The reason I just I just thought I'd point it out because this is not something I was ever familiar with until I went to a Catholic university. But Roman Catholics are very concerned about what is called the Vincentian Canon, or at least the, theologians were. I don't know that the average Roman Catholic is. <laughs> um, but theologians have been concerned with this problem of what was necessary at all times and in all places for everyone to believe in order to be a Christian. So, they ha so whatever is true about Christianity has to have been available in the church at all times, and it has been necessary to believe in all places. Um, and, 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 and so that's the Vincentian canon. So they were sort of worried about like, well, if you believe that Aquinas is right, um, and that's what you should believe about transubstantiation, uh, well, what about anybody who came before Aquinas? Um, they didn't re believe the right things about transubstantiation. That seems to be a problem. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so the Vincentian canon says there is something that was given to Peter. And Vincentian lived in the, if I remember this correctly, the 6th or the 7th century. Um, Vincent, Vincent of Lorraine is his name. Um, but anyway, so that's kind of what they're dealing with. Okay, the problem of Revelation, uh, for one, it's a little hard for me to answer this because I come from more of a Bartian angle that wants to reject any kind of natural theology. So anytime we talk about natural theology, it makes me squeamish. Actually, the um, moment he asked, he said natural revelation, all I thought was, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna like this. Yeah, it is a Bartian. Trevor, stop. <laughs> well, because within like this very work in 15, when he talks about the Sodomites, he says, "By the same token, vices contrary to nature are everywhere right. and always to be detested." That's right. And you know, your natural law uh, devotee is gonna get real stoked when he reads that and think, "Yeah, see, this is evidence from what from what we've been saying." And so I I wonder. Yeah, how much is this discoverable through just sort of reason and nature? But yeah, I mean, I think reason and yeah. So I think for Aquinas, yeah, he's going to say, well, we can extract that. Re- that there's a truth. Well, and not, not neither Aquinas nor Bart nor Augustine nor any of the theologians want to say that. You know, revelation is given once um, in a very strict sense. The revelation that comes in the scriptures. Um, has to have been in some sense fixed. No one wants to, you know, wants progressive revelation in terms of sort of beyond scripture. Like we're not adding to scripture. Um, so all of them, you know, are gonna gonna recognize that that has to be um, somewhat per- permanent or something. But yeah, so I think what what the work and the task of the and the task of theology for Aquinas is something like. Um, taking what is given in revelation, taking what we know in throughout, through the world, um, using our reason, um, to better understand what was given once. I think that's right. Cause I, I mean, I don't know. Any, yeah. pro- any problem with that? No, no, that sounds, that sounds good. No. Yeah. Oh. It's, it's just a tension in this. Like I see it's part of the very tension we're just dealing with is all because it seems like, Augustine doesn't give super clear standards. You know, he, he does, he references something being contrary to nature and that's always wrong. Um, and that seems to be why it's always wrong. And then when he talks about human codes, he says, look, if God commands something that conflicts with the customer rule of a human society, it's to be done. But then you're like, well, what if the code of the human society actually matches up with nature? And then how do you determine what God said, like, there's a lot of puzzles, basically. You can create a million puzzles in here, but I, I mostly asked it also for his, like the, the historical reason, like, cause we were talking about, uh, Augustine's, uh, concept of theology. or well, you were, you were just talking about his sort of where he would have come at theology in general. And I was starting to wonder, given he references something being contrary to nature, uh, how this fits with like, now it seems like natural law theories, well, it, you know, Catholics are a huge proponent of, of course, but it seems to be a whole camp of people now in Christian uh, theology that it's like this, that this is the only way. And anyway, I was just yeah. more, yeah. Go on. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think St. Augustine, I don't think Bart is necessarily, you know, getting his, Bart is not taking his anti-natural uh, uh, law from Augustine necessarily. Um, and so that would be a way, and, and, uh, like one of the pieces where those, those two thinkers would part ways. Um, but uh, because, because Augustine also thinks that a lot of truth was given to the Platonists, more truth than was given to any other philosoph- philosophical group. So uh, that's at least part of his... Um, uh, part of his journey and part of what he believes. Um, well, you see that at, you see that at the end of last night's reading, right? At, yeah. I mean, at the end of uh, book five, uh, or last night's reading, our reading for today, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> at the end of book five, he's realizing the Manichees are wrong, and the thing that has led him to that is the Platonists, right? The That's Neoplatonists. Right. I mean, he's he's reading these guys and he's saying, "Oh, these guys have way more going for them," uh, and like where we left off in last night's reading, he's now at a point, he's 29 years old, I think. 
And he says, I realize the Manichees are wrong because of the, the, the Neoplatonists who are just way more rigorous. Their stuff makes way more sense. But I don't want to entrust my soul to them. So I've decided to become a catechumen at the church just because. Like, I feel like, you know, I don't, I don't really believe it, but I need something to tend to my soul. I don't want it to be the philosophers. So I'm going to go ahead and be a catechumen at church, which means I'm not committed, but I'm hearing and I'm learning and I'm preparing. Uh, and maybe I'll change my mind when the time comes kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you start seeing him go that path. I actually think one of the things about last night's reading or our reading for today, sorry, got to stop saying that. Our reading for today is a lot of it is narrative rather than uh, philosophy, right? I mean, it's much more what's actually happening in his life um, and how he's kind of beginning that progression towards Christianity, you know? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I guess uh, I was going to, I don't know how much we, we narrated this um, in the, I can't remember exactly how much we, we narrated all of this um, from uh, book four, but, but he goes on to be a teacher of rhetoric in Carthage. Um, and, and that's, and, and that's when he, in Carthage was when he encounters uh, the Manichees. Um, and I just thought I would, um, because again, this, my, my research revolves heavily around this. Um, there's a, there are a lot of distinctions between, um, pure uh, rhetoric and studying in a philosophical, what we call schools. Um, of course, you know, you have to keep in mind that doesn't mean that you could, you know, you matriculated in some university uh, to study uh, with the philosophers. Usually your parents paid a certain amount of money directly to the rhetorician, um, and that's what Augustine did. And, and the purpose of rhetoric, as he tells uh, in, in book four, was I, who was enslaved by desire, was selling all conquering eloquence. And this is uh, book four, two, two. I preferred to give good pupils um, in the ordinary sense of the term good. And I was teaching deceit to those who were not then deceivers, uh, not so that they would act against the lives of the innocent, but so that sometimes they would protect the guilty. God, you saw far, how far I stumbled in slippery places um, because he, uh, I manifested this in my role as a teacher uh, to those who loved vanity and sought after lies, and I was in their company. Basically, what I'm giving at, what I'm trying to get at here um, is what he, what the, what he understood the purpose of education to be. Um, and what's sort of interesting is he does actually take that to be better than what he learned with the Manichees, ultimately, yeah. uh, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, he and, and for Augustine, you're not just going to have um, difference without hierarchy. There's always hierarchy. Um, and so the Manichees are worse uh, than the rhetoricians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the rhetoricians are vain people that teach people how to use um, good speech and lies uh, to bring charges against the innocent is what he says here. Uh, yeah. Basically, if you're a lawyer, sometimes you're, it is your job to try to absolve someone who is guilty. Um, and that's part of what learning rhetoric is. Um, and he, Which, yeah. He actually says it's okay, that it's okay, or not, he doesn't say it from his vantage point now, but from his vantage point from that point in time was, it's okay as a lawyer to use your rhetorical skills to acquit the guilty, to get the guilty acquitted. It's not okay to falsely imprison the innocent, right? So yeah. he, it's, it's an interesting thing. He's, even in his pre-Christian days, he recognizes it is a terribly unjust thing to get an innocent man condemned. But it's maybe less so to get the guilty acquitted, right? Like, that's a helpful skill to have. And I'm okay with making money, or not, again, as a Christian, but he was okay uh, making money off of that. Yeah. And the eloquence is, is the big thing here. Like a lot of people understood words to just be beautiful, but he, it didn't matter so much what they were used for. Um, and that like one of the, my dissertation will be about how he takes what he learned as a rhetorician and employs it as a preacher. And to what extent there is similarities um, because he's, you know, he's on uh, from a historical perspective. Um, he's unintelligible if you don't know uh, about his education. Um but he also recognizes that what he does as a preacher is quite a bit different. Mm -hmm. um, so book four, the, you know, ultimately Tom, Tom jumped us into book five uh, where he goes on to um, 
really uh, are we, well, do we want to go to book five? Or are we going to, you know, that was where, where you jumped to. I didn't know. Do I just did a jump. We don't need to turn there. I just said it because something you said made me think of it. Mm-hmm. One thing I'd like to bring up and maybe you guys can help me find it. I didn't, I haven't marked, but I need to do better at putting notes like where I need to talk, but based on something you just said, Chad, um, about eloquence, he made a comment. I can't remember if it was in four or five where he talks about the fact that too many people essentially are deceived because they think eloquence um, is truth, right? Um, yep. You know, and so he really, you know, points out that it's just far better. <coughs> well, first of all, that there's no correlation between truth and eloquence. Like you can be a terribly eloquent person and you can use that eloquence to uh, communicate falsehood. And this is true. This is true today, right? Uh, we, I mean, it's, it's, I think I should say it's just true of human nature. People say things in a way that resonate and we believe them. You know, people say things in a way that is beautiful. We believe them. People say things in a way that is offensive or harsh and we reject them. It really, the, the thought of it, uh, of whether or not the thing being communicated is true is something that I think we, we think we're paying attention to, but I think often we're not. Right. Um, I yeah, just found that pretty interesting when he brought that so up. So, th- book four, thirteen, twenty, and uh, and following is where he talks about how um, orators can say beautiful things, and people love it because they describe it beautifully. But what actually is beautiful is the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, so he, you know, um, uh, he asked. Well, anyway, uh, that that I think somewhere in that section, I don't know precisely which quote you you wanted to pull out, but um, can that love enter the heart of a listener from the mouth of one who's offering praise? Of course not. But one person's love kindles another. Thus, someone who is praised comes to be loved, provided that that pr- praise is reliable. A declaration coming, and this is critical uh, critical for me, from a sincere heart. Corde non falici corde. That is when the person who does the praising is the same one who feels the love. And so this is, I, I take this to be the turning point in Augustine's understanding of the difference between a preacher, a, a rhetorician, an orator, one who's good at skill, and a preacher. A preacher feels in his heart um, a love uh, for the the thing that he is the person that he is praising right so a rhetorician is usually praising or decrying um someone on trial um or maybe in the case of a historian like plutarch they're looking at okay what what is praiseworthy in caesar and julius caesar what is uh um what is uh blameworthy in someone like um mark uh mark antony or you know whoever um so he's taking these people and talking about praise and blame um but a preacher actually believes it, and and a rhetorician um, just does it for the the sake of using beautiful words, uh, and and so deceives people in some cases. I like that distinction. You know, I, I think you you know this the the quote that a lot of people throw out: "The road to hell is paved with good intentions." I've always hated that quote because mm. <laughs> it seems to me that the if there's I mean the, the road to hell. Whatever God's judgment looks like must be paved with bad intentions. It, it just seems horrible if it's paved with good intentions that God's intent is to condemn and damn based on the fact that people, really well-meaning people who are really trying to do the right thing, are just wrong. You know what I mean? Like, perhaps it's a very- fault of their own. Sorry, go ahead, Chad. No, Trevor. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a very, well, I think that quote also shows a sort of consequentialist bent in us sometimes to think of uh, the road to hell being about the consequences of our actions rather than our intentions. But, um, yeah, I basically I understand what you mean, but I think people are thinking more about the consequences than they really are about um yeah, the heart of the person, basically. And it. I think, quite obviously, though, most people know that at the end of the day, well, I mean, it's actually written into the legal code, right, that people do care about intention, of course. We care about the consequences, but uh, we care about the intention as well. And I would, and I would think that 
Augustine definitely does when he is making this distinction between the different types of orators. Um, he doesn't quite go on to talk about sort of whether the consequences of the, of the, I guess the preacher or whatever uh, need to be different. Um, but that's the thing since he doesn't mention it, perhaps it really just is the intention of the order. I don't know what he that does seem to be the distinction he makes, right? Is that the, right. the big difference between the orator and the preacher is the preacher speaks from conviction and the orator speaks from some other thing, right? Um, which I think, you know, when I think of the, you know, I, when I think of the, I'll go get, I have, an, I have a friend right now who's just recently uh, converted to the Jehovah's Witness movement, right? Now, I don't want him to be a Jehovah's Witness. I want to sit down with him to try to convince him that he is misunderstanding the scripture, that he's wrong, and to try to bring him back, I guess, to, um, this is going to sound bad, but to the right side, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I'm oversimplifying. That's what I'm, that's kind of what I'm, that's what I'm thinking. But let me say this about him. I think he's earnest and sincere, right? I think, I mean, I can't judge somebody's heart, but he seems to be somebody who's trying to figure stuff out. And it just so happened that when he was in a situation where he only had access to Jehovah's Witness people who were speaking to him, they said stuff that resonated with him that seemed right, right? I want to, of course, you know, broaden his horizons in a sense, try to try to um, uh, show him some other, like the other side of some of those issues. But I don't look at him and think, oh, this guy is just like a horrible, evil heretic, right? Uh, even though in one sense he is a heretic because heresy is just false teaching, you know, false belief in that sense. But for me, the most damnable stuff, the most damnable heresies, the things that I go, oh, my gosh, that guy right there. I, I think of those people who are using their preaching to get rich. I think of those guys who are buying two $70 million jets, right? And they're, they're basically going in and they're playing off of the ignorance of people who don't know better. And, and I just look at that and I go, those people, their concern is not to increase faith. Their concern is not to bring the gospel of Jesus. Their concern is to line their pockets, Right. And again, it's hard because I know I can't judge a person's heart, but you can look at people's behavior and action and draw certain conclusions. When I see that, I go, they are the rhetoricians. They are the ones Augustine's talking about. The people who are using tricks that they've learned to make themselves successful without any concern or regard for what is true and without any concern for trying to communicate the truth. And I think one thing the church needs to do a better job of is is really recognizing where that exists and fighting against that. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult, of course, because like you said, you can't know people's hearts. But, man, that has got to be one of the worst problems. I think especially in uh, in in the type of society we have now with American Christianity, where often a church can easily become focused around one central uh, pastor who becomes this like celebrity. It's mm-hmm. like just way too easy. And yeah, it does show also, I, I kind of think that Augustine does hit something else right on the head here when he makes this distinction between the two types of orders, because Christ himself was a bit of an order who, when he said things, uh, did say things basically with the intent of, well, well, of course he had the right intention, but it was, moreover, he said, like, I can't affect the consequences of this. Like, he who has ears, let him hear. Like, yeah. he, did, he put it out there, basically. And so it, it really is sort of an anti-consequentialist take on, like, what makes uh, the order good. Because some people do defend some of these pastors and people, by just pointing to consequences. Look, they did this and this. Yeah. Know? But it's like, yeah, but they lied the whole time. <laughs> and yeah. they had no intention, you know. So Yeah, I, I, I was I'm trying to I was trying to find the passage uh where he uh distinguishes between eloquence and what the uh or and what the Manichees did, uh or between liberal learning and the Manichees precisely. Because it is sort of interesting in in this um for the sake of this comparison between Jehovah's Witnesses, um, street preachers who are just trying to line their pockets, um, and true Christianity, we so we sort of have those 
three groups in our in our mind in the present day. In Augustine's day, we're talking a little bit about the difference between a preacher of the of true Christianity, a rhetorician, and a manichae. Um, and he takes the manichae not to be like the Jehovah's Witness, um, but to be like the 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 street the preacher who's trying to um, get money, um, like by the uh, like Joel Joel Osteen. Um, that's my go-to example. Joel Osteen or, you know, I don't know. Uh, there, there are plenty of them. I don't, I guess I don't spend enough time thinking about them to even remember them. Um, <laughs> but Joel Osteen comes to mind. So Joel Osteen tries to get money. Um, and, and, and Augustine compares the manichae to that. Um, but my initial reaction was to compare the manichae to the Jehovah's Witness because I think when he meets um, Faustus later, you know, he's like, he kind of thinks, well, Faustus doesn't know as much as he said, um, and he kind of thinks like, well, maybe Faustus was like he was just he's just not as smart, um, and like I kind of think of, sometimes when I think of Jehovah's Witnesses, I think, oh, you just kind of been duped, uh, yeah. and you just don't really know any better. But I think he thinks the Manichees are doing something more akin to, and in the end, he actually thinks they are worse, uh, the worse sinner or something like because they're they have their, they're so close to the truth um and yet they're so far because uh, yeah. they are reading parts of the bible and they're talking about the old testament or the new testament some of these things they have similarities to him but i think i think that's what makes him all the more vitriolic um is he's so worried um that they sound you know he reserves his most um chest like his, his worst rhetoric his his harshest rhetoric um for those who are actually closer to him um yep. because he's so worried uh that 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 his people will be deceived by them yeah you know you saying that just made me think uh we talked about the jehovah's witnesses being duped right that is a frustrating thing that you just it's like when i i don't get as upset maybe upset's the wrong word i don't get as as argumentative perhaps, or as like forceful in argumentation when people disagree with me philosophically or uh, theologically in a sense, as when they disagree with me factually, you know what I mean? Uh, especially when it's something they don't know uh, any, you know what they're talking. Uh, they don't know what they're talking about. So it's like, I can see where somebody who has an Aryan view of Christ gets some of their positions, right? I mean, if you read through the Bible, there are passages which create tension with the notion of Jesus as God, right? Obvious ones, like the fact, for instance, that there's only one God, and yet there's Father, Son, and Spirit. I mean, that itself creates a tension. I get it when somebody reads it and they're trying to make sense of it. What is, you know, what you just mentioned, talking to this friend of mine, he's being given false information, and that's the thing that really gets me, right? He's been told, oh, Christians weren't Trinitarian prior to 325, right? Uh, prior to the Nicene Creed and Constantine. But that's just not true. You know, and anybody who's listened to our podcast who's been with us from the beginning knows that. You guys know that Christianity, like you do not have this idea of Jesus as God or a triune God beginning with Constantine in 325. You're, you're, you're looking at an, uh, you know, an evolution of understanding, sure, but you do not have the earliest Christian writers asserting that Jesus is not divine or that he is not uh, the one true God. Like, you don't have those assertions. So right there you have ignorance. And one of the things that's a killer in conversation nowadays is that in spite of the, how connected we are, right, uh, in spite of the fact that Google is at your fingertips and you can look up information at the drop of a hat, people are still remain ignorant of, of like facts, like of what's true. And it's because of all the misinformation out there. I mean, heck, we could start going down a political rabbit trail here, right? I mean, and <laughs> talking about how news outlets are, are you know, uh, I mean, are discredited or whatever, because, uh, because there's so much information out there, much of it is wrong. And how do you, how do you make a decision when you are uninformed, right? I mean, there are plenty of things I'm totally uninformed about. Um, for instance, I just don't read physics journals. I just have to take it from the very few sources I get that discoveries in physics are what they say they are. You know what I mean? Like, I just have to take it as given. And when somebody argues against it, I don't really have any ground to go against the information, right? 
Uh, anyway, sorry, just kind of a little tangent there. I probably shouldn't have gone down, but it was just something I thought about when you talked about how, you know, when you look at the Jehovah's Witness, you're thinking of a group that is duped, right? And that's, and, and that's a problem with so many of kind of these fringe religious groups that pop up. Um, same thing with those name it and claim it, you know, preacher types who are out there for a buck, you know, they're duped, you know? Yeah. Oh, and speaking of the history of the podcast, doesn't, I think, um, this is the, uh, the Didache, uh, or the Didache, uh, that depending, you know, whatever pronunciation, I don't know, um, that, uh, that says something about like people who, who deceive for money. There's a, there's a section at the end there where, uh, the writer of the Didache does this, the, makes this distinction that we're making. And he basically would agree with us. The, the, the intent matters. Um, Thank you for listening to this week's edition of uh, History of Christian Theology. We did books three and four. We'll move on to book five next week with Tom, uh, Trevor, and I. And then, uh, yeah, we'll keep going down this journey with Augustine. So we appreciate you listening. Please rate us on iTunes. Um, support us on Patreon. And uh, we really appreciate your support. Thank you so much.